church. We begin a new series uh, today called Rise and Build. And I had the opportunity before service to meet several first-time uh, families. So I won't call you out now, but I just want to say welcome. You've come to a place. Uh, the Exchange Church is a place where purpose is awakened and developed. And I'm just so glad to see uh, new family here and and then old family that's here i just love you guys so much um we begin this new series called rise and build we just came out of a series about hope and i think it's time now it feels time that we turn our attention to building something don't you think i mean we've eaten our ice cream on the couch we spend our fair share of time with Netflix. It's time to build something. Can I get an amen from somebody who's ready to move from rubble to revival? There's a lot of rubble in the room. There's a lot of rubble online. A lot of rubble from broken relationships. A lot of rubble with marriages struggling in the room. There's a lot of rubble uh, from visions that we no longer are running after, carrying dreams that we've let go dormant in our life. Things that pain and disappointment have taken away from us. You know what I'm talking about, those visions laying in ruins. Th those books that were supposed to have been written laying in ruins. Those ministries that you were supposed to start laying in ruins the outreach events to your neighborhood that you were going to do. You know, you remember you had that idea of like movie night once a week outside during the summer and you wanted to reach all your neighbors for Christ. But that's long gone. And now the, the dream of evangelizing is laying in ruins. I hope I'm not the only person today that's having to kick around some rubble in my life having to sift through the bricks and the mortar and the pieces of dreams that I once were pursuing. I, I hope you can understand that it's time that you and I get to a place where we dust ourselves off and we rise and we build. I suppose my goal during this sermon series over the next several weeks is for us to go from rubble to revival rubble to revival the resurrection of sight the resurrection of vision the resurrection of dreams the resurrection of marriages the resurrection of purpose the resurrection of direction anyone need a resurrection of clarity this morning but the haze to be lifted and for clarity to set in and so that you know that the steps you're taking aren't just in this wilderness area, but there's clarity. You know where you're going. There's a resurrection of trust, a resurrection of intimacy with God, a resurrection of feeling. Some of us are so numb. We just need a resurrection to feel again. Dreams? What's that? Vision? What's, 
what's that? I just want to feel again. I just want to wake up in the morning and feel like my life matters again. I want to feel like my relationships that have been disconnected and disjointed for the past year and a half are actually coming together again. Someone out in the room or in TV land today feels that way. It is time. It is time for us to rise and build. It is time for us to sense some traction in our prayer life. I know we've been praying and it feels like it's hitting the ceiling and coming back down. We're we're even numb to prayer. But it's time to rise and build. It's time to move forward with purpose, with dreams, with vision, like never before. I want to take you to an old book in the Bible, the book of Nehemiah. It is the book on which our church was established. That's a story for another day, but um, our heart is very much toward Nehemiah and what he's gone through and how he establishes the city walls and God calls him back home. I want to take you to chapter one, the first four verses. That's all we're going to talk about today in the remaining four hours that you're going to be here. Just four verses today. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, when I heard these things, what's connected to your ears? Your heart. When I heard these things, turn to your neighbor and say, when I heard these things, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Father, I come before you today. I thank you so much that it is not an accident that we're sitting in the auditorium of the Exchange Church this morning. It's not a mistake that we're tuning in online or maybe there are people watching this sermon months later in our archives. It's not a mistake that they're hearing this word today. God, you have destined for this moment to be birthed in our heart. So God, I ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, that you would come. And that you would just divide this word 400, 500 different ways so that each one of us knows that we've heard from you today. That it speaks directly to our context, to our situation, to what we've been asking you for, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say, amen, amen, amen. We have probably been watching some news, a little bit of news. Anyone? A little bit of news. Some of you are like, no way. My wife. (laughs) 
she has this app on her phone and I'll say, what are you doing? She was like, I'm reading the news. And two seconds later, she was like, look, Trey, there were four kittens that were laying with a tiger in the <laughs> zoo of Zimbabwe. And I said, I thought you were, I thought you were watching the news. And she goes, yeah, it's the news I like to read. I don't know what my wife has subscribed to, but she will literally, I get four or five breaking news stories every day, um, you know, about, about flowers that are growing randomly in some field in New Jersey, right? It's just, um, it's, it's been incredible. But um, for others that, that watch news, the news news, we've probably seen some things about Afghanistan. Probably, if we have a heart at all, we have uh, taken a few gasps here and there. Our hearts stopped for a moment. Maybe whew, we grabbed onto our seat when we saw certain images of certain things. My mind goes to, on the 16th, the big plane that was taking off, and you saw Afghan people, the plane was loaded with people trying to get them to safety and you see a bunch of uh, people running with the plane and then the plane takes off and of course we all know the devastating end to that story correct some people were uh, fell from the sky off the plane as they were trying to get out some people you know I won't relay the gory details but uh, as I've been processing processing that with Jesus I've been thinking about uh, Noah's Ark, and how what happened in Afghanistan is eerily similar to a door that was closed to an ark, and rain that began to fall, and people that wanted to escape and couldn't. Are you with me? Yeah. Not at all to suggest that the Afghan people are like the, the sinners in Noah's day. That's not where I'm going. Um, I'm, I'm simply saying um, that the news is weighty these days. Now, sometimes you have to wade through a, a mess to get to the real stuff. Sometimes I don't even know who's telling me the truth. Can I just be honest? Sometimes you don't hear me weigh in on a massive uh, social issue because I just don't know who to believe anymore. So I keep my nose in scripture because I know who won't lie to me. Right? Are you with me? But it's heart-wrenching to see any nation come to ruins. I don't care your belief system. I don't care if you're uh, Shia or Shiite Muslim. I, like, you are a people made in God's image. You are a nation who once were holding your own, and now you lay in ruins. By the way, just a side note, America's not above someday laying in ruins. That's not what this sermon is about. I want us to just use Afghanistan today as a backdrop for potentially what Nehemiah might have been feeling. A city that is broken down in ruins, People that aren't safe, they have no shelter, there is no wall, and his heart goes out to them. We, we can understand on some small level what Nehemiah must have been experiencing in this story. 
Now, let me back up just a bit to, to help you trace through uh, the genealogy of how we are, where we are in Nehemiah chapter 1, okay? Uh, this is going to be a very, very quick Old Testament survey course. I'm going to make it super quick. You won't feel like you're in seminary. If you do um, feel like you're in seminary, you can pay tuition in the barrels. <laughs> but I'll try to avoid that. We start with Abraham, the father of a great nation. He was given a vision that he would one day have a people that outnumbered the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. And Abraham has a son, a son of obedience. His name is Isaac. Isaac then has a son named Jacob. Jacob wrestles with an angel and his name is changed to Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel has 12 sons, a.k.a. the 12 tribes of Israel. As some of you are like, oh, that makes more sense, right? Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, and Jacob and his extended family of about 70 people, uh, their family is growing continuously, they decide to go down to Egypt. They go down to Egypt. They get so large, over 3 million people, actually Abraham and his clan, 3 million people that Pharaoh starts to get nervous. He gets nervous because the population is so big, he doesn't want them to start telling the Egyptians what to do. So Pharaoh decides he's going to enslave the people of Abraham. All right? So this is how we now find ourselves for over 400 years in slavery. And then God speaks to a man named Moses. Moses was a guy who didn't talk very well. Okay, maybe he stuttered. There's something about his speech that made him feel very insignificant. But God uses Moses to talk to Pharaoh to bring the people out of bondage and into freedom. So they leave Pharaoh after the plagues, of course, and they start walking and they're walking to the Red Sea, toward the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh realizes he makes a mistake. He gathers his army and he wants to go and collect his merchandise again. And they're standing there at the sea. They hear the hoof prints of the army behind them. They hear the wheels of the chariots hitting the rocks as the army is coming closer to them. And God doesn't tell them to go left or right. He just says to be still and wait. And we've seen the movie, The Water's Part. And they walk through and they think that it's all perfect. We've finally reached our destination. We've finally, Donovan, gotten to our promised land. But that's not where they ended up. They ended up in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness, they started to grumble, complain. These are the same people who were in bondage, having to build buildings, build architectural structures for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They weren't fed properly. They were whipped. They were actually working so long because Pharaoh didn't want them to reproduce. He figured if I got them so tired, they wouldn't. Uh, you know, what? In the evening. So he worked them from sun up to sun down. And these same tortured people, after 
a matter of years in the wilderness, want to go back to the slavery because they're disheartened with where they are. After a generation died off from disobedience, there was a younger generation that rose up, a millennial generation, a Generation Z generation that rose up. And they went into the promised land. And in the promised land, listen, they could conquer nations and they could get their spoils. And they were walking in the favor of God and God was just blessing them. And like, this is what God had intended for his people. But they started looking at other nations. Well, why do they have a king? We don't have a king. Why do they have a king? They have a king and it looks like they're doing pretty good. I think we want a king. So instead of surrendering and submitting to God's rule, they demanded for a king. Sometimes God loves you enough to give you what you demand for, just so that you will learn that's not really what you needed. Anytime God wants to judge a nation, he will place evil rulers over them to accomplish that. So then... Enter Saul. Saul was, you know, half listened to God, half listened to his own heart. And, and God needed to remove Saul for partial obedience because partial obedience is complete disobedience. And so God was going to remove Saul and up comes David rising in the wings. David is anointed to lead long before David ever had the title. Listen, God will anoint you for the next season of your life long before you have the title of the next season in your life. Then we see David who led these people, these Israelites. Then after David, David had a son named Solomon. Anyone ever heard of Solomon's wisdom? I told you this was in a complete Old Testament survey course. Solomon, so much wisdom. He wrote most of the Proverbs. Any of you making really dumb decisions, read a proverb a day. There's 31 of them. How convenient is that? Every month you just cycle through the book of Proverbs. Like every morning, if whatever today's date is, what is today's date? 29th, I would read Proverbs 29 today. Isn't that just so easy, Kendall? That's so easy. Solomon was so wise until he wasn't. It was the women. That came from a woman, by the way, <laughs> let me just clarify. Solomon was wise until he started hooking up with crazy women. He started, <laughs> started connecting with crazy women. And then we see after Solomon, after Solomon declines, we see Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a fool, basically. He was a fool that listened to wisdom of bad friends instead of wisdom from wise men. We find ourselves eventually, Israel, after they've been through all of these ups and downs, we find that they're split. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And then there was this empire that rose up. They wanted to conquer them. The Assyrians, not good people. So the Assyrians around seven. 120 BC, 720 years before Christ, decided they're going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And they developed this new strategy for war. 
they handcuffed or shackled the men, their wrists and their feet, and they had to walk behind their army. And behind the shackled men were the wives and the children. It was a place of shame so that I, as a father and a husband, could be on display for my family to see that I had been captured. And instead of capturing a place and then inhabiting a place, the Assyrians removed the people and took them with them. They they took the northern part of Israel. Well, the Babylonians thought that was a good idea, so a couple hundred years later, they come on in and saddle up their horses to conquer the southern kingdom, Judah. And they do the exact same thing. They carry people back to Babylon in the exact same fashion. And this is known as the 70 years of exile for Israel. 70 years of exile. Now, they've been 400 years in slavery, 40 years wandering, finally living the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air life. That really ages me, I know, but I don't care. It's a good show. Right? Um, now I'm just wanting to sing the song, but I need to keep going. Anyway. Then they get conquered on the northern front. They get conquered on the southern front. And now they're 70 years in captivity in Babylon. Now, during this time, during this 70 years of captivity, don't feel bad for the Israelites. Because out of this horrendous captivity came people like Ezekiel. We have people like Daniel. We have people like Esther during this time established. We have people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because of this era, like during such great opposition, during such uh, tremendous adversity, there was an overproduction of kingdom heroes. Because adversity produces kingdom heroes. Pandemics produce kingdom heroes. Economic disasters produce kingdom heroes. Like, all the the things that we're encountering in the world today, there is no reason to run and hide. This is the time to rise and build because it is through adversity. It, It is through the challenges of life that you and I get to step into what we are called here for. Parents, don't feel bad that you have... Little babies in such a crazy world, they were born for such a time as this. I know that little three-year-old doesn't seem like a world changer. He seems like a home destroyer. But God has placed something inside of that little man or that little woman that you are called to steward. And don't be afraid of what they're going to experience because they already have inside of them everything that the Lord needs to use to turn a wicked generation to a holy generation, to turn a lost generation to a found generation, to find a a dead person and make them alive again. Are Are you excited today? Come on. That will change your perspective just a bit. The world didn't happen to us. It happens 
for us. I think Lady Preacher said that last week. Did you say that last week? My wife said that last week. So uh, Jerusalem, the northern part, the southern part, they've now been like, captured, right? So now Jerusalem lays desolate. And in our text, Nehemiah chapter 1, by the way, that's the way our Bible looks now, Nehemiah and Ezra. It wasn't always separated. It used to be Ezra hyphen Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are together um, back to back. So you'll want to read Ezra and Nehemiah because they record three stories of leaders who oversaw groups of people returning to Jerusalem. Okay, so right now where I've left you at the story, we've gone all the way from Abraham through biblical history, genealogy, all of these transitions. And now where I've left you is to know that the Israelites are in Babylon 70 years of captivity. But then in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, we see a man named Zerubbabel. He takes a group of people from Babylon back to Jerusalem and they begin to restore the temple. Well, first of all, how does that happen? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked because the Persians came in and the Persians conquered the Babylons and the Persians had favor on Israel. Now that's incredible because actually Persia is Iran. Persia, old Persia, is today Iran. Oh, this is a rabbit trail. I don't know if I can afford the time, but let me go there real quick. <laughs> Ezekiel is writing a prophetic book about end times. And he says that Persia is going to come against Israel in the end of days. But when he writes it, Persia is in favor of Israel. <laughs> it gets better. In 1948, when Israel became a nation, guess who was one of their allies? Iran. Oh, you thought they were never friends, didn't you? That's not true. They began friends. Iran was one of the first Muslim nations to even declare Israel as a nation. So the fact that the word of God says there's coming a day where Iran and Israel will be at odds is not only highly prophetic, it is highly accurate that could not have been replicated 2,500 years ago in scripture because it looks completely opposite in Ezekiel's day. That's, that's more proof of a Bible written by a creator who knew what was going to happen 2,500 years later. So Persia sends them on their way with Zerubbabel. They rebuild the temple. Uh, then there's the next person. About 60 years later, Ezra leaves with a group of people. And Ezra's main mission, his burden, was to relight the fire spiritually in the people in Jerusalem, in, in Israel. Okay, and then about 13 years later, we see this third character, um, Nehemiah, who is about to go to Israel to rebuild the city walls. So you've got most of the people, or some of the people, still in Babylon. Because Nehemiah had found a job there, so he's still there. In fact, he was born in Babylon, never even been to Jerusalem. So he's in Babylon as the king's cupbearer, and a group comes from Jerusalem. And that's where verse 1 picks up. It says, the words of Nehemiah... 
in the month of Kislev, that's November and December. So in just a couple of months, this would have been happening in his day, okay? In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, so Nehemiah is in the citadel of Susa, which is the winter palace for the Persian kings. In other words, he had a government job. Anybody have a government job in the room today? Free game. It is, oh wait, was there someone that said yes? Good on you. Government jobs are amazing. I used to work for the government. It's called the United States Air Force. I, uh, so we see here that Nehemiah is working a government job. He is a cupbearer for the king. Now, what does that mean? That means that Nehemiah, anytime the king is going to take a drink of wine, it's Nehemiah's job to first take a sip. How many of you would like that job? Don't raise your hand in church, okay? So he would take a sip of the wine to make sure that it wasn't poison. He would take a bite of the food to make sure that it wasn't. Can we silence that phone, please? Thank you. He would take a bite of the food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. That was the purpose of the cupbearer. So it was the cupbearer's responsibility to keep the king alive. So the king had to make sure that whenever he hired a cupbearer, that it was someone that was established in character and established in integrity. You can't just let anybody bear your cup. He also, you know, there's, there's a few things I suppose that he wanted to do. He wanted to make sure that people liked his cupbearer because if they knew that it would kill the cupbearer before the king, they would potentially not want to go there because they liked the cupbearer. So he wasn't looking for a people pleaser, but he was looking for someone who was gentle and kind with the people to be his cupbearer. And that's what Nehemiah was. He had a government job. We don't know how long he was there, uh, but what we do know is that he had direct access to people of influence. I would say the king is a person of influence. What you call relationships, God calls an open door. What we would call jobs, God would call a springboard. You see, Nehemiah didn't know when he accepted the position of being the cupbearer to the king, that it was going to make a way for his homeland to rebuild the city walls. He didn't, he didn't know that. He said yes to a government job because it had good benefits. Wise people steward relationships carefully. Wise people don't treat their jobs with contempt. Listen, this is, we need to understand this today because I see too many believers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, kingdom carriers, walking around complaining about their jobs. Do we believe in a God who has positioned us and purposed us for a season and a position or not? When we complain about our job, and I'm teaching my kids this, all three of them have, that are still at home have jobs now. Hallelujah, I love it. But one thing that they're getting to learn is we get to be grateful even, even when. Verse 2, Hannah and I, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant who had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. 
he questioned them about the Jewish remnant. Remember, Nehemiah was born in Babylon. He had, was not born in Jerusalem, never had been to the city of Jerusalem, but there was a connection there because he knew that was the city that bore the name of God, Yahweh, God. He, he knew that his family was there, his, his roots were there. So he said to the people that came from Jerusalem, he said, tell me about the city. T tell me how it's going. I wonder how many of us miss the opportunity to rise and build something great because we keep our mouths shut and we don't ask the right questions to the right people at the right time. I, I know you're like, I'm shy. I'm shy too. I get it. It's a curse. But purpose requires you and I to ask some questions. To, to open our mouth. I love one of my kids has a, a note section in their phone. And, and she, every time she thinks of good questions to ask new people, she writes them down so that if she ever finds herself in the presence of someone influential, she doesn't have to rack her brain to try to think of what questions to ask. She opens up her notes and she's got a whole list of questions to ask how they got, where they are, what's their biggest, whatever, whatever. I think that's brilliant. Purpose begins by asking questions. He said, tell me about the people. Some of us will miss what God is doing because we won't insert our heart into a situation. Some of us will miss what God is doing because we won't insert our heart into a cause. We won't insert our heart into a people. We won't insert our heart into a region. We won't insert our heart into a church. For some of us watching online or in the room today, we've had your body for a really long time, but we've not had your heart. We've had your attendance, but we've not had your heart. We've had your viewership, but we've not had your heart. And, and sometimes we don't realize what we're walking away from when we fail to invest our heart into the situation. It, it's time for us, church, to invest our heart. It's time to rise and build. And, and that looks different in your context. Don't get offended. There's no reason to. I'm, I'm calling you higher. If your pastor can't call you higher without you getting offended, then I was never really your pastor to begin with. Yeah. It's time that we invest more than just an hour and a half watching online or sitting in the room. Like, what is it that you and I can invest to build the kingdom? How can we insert our heart into what God is doing? It's time that we insert our time into what God is doing. It's, it's time that we insert our resources, financial and otherwise, into what God is doing. Our giftings into what God is doing. Our failures, our mistakes, our honesty and transparency into what God is doing. We want it all. Not just the, that sounds, you can take that one of two ways. We want all you have to offer. Or you can take it the way I meant it is. We'll take the good and the bad. Because that's what family does. You don't have to show up with an agenda just to prove that you're something of value and you're something of worth that you can insert into this church. We'll take the good. We'll take the bad. We'll take the put together. We'll take the messy. We'll take it all. You know why? Because it's not your job, nor is it my job to clean you up. It's the Lord's job. It's our job to find relationship. It's our job to belong before we believe. It's our job to believe before we behave. 
Verse 3. Let me wrap this, wrap this down. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. The walls are broken down. It doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we don't live in, in, in cities with walls. So we don't, we, don't, we don't get it. But back in this time, cities took pride in their walls. And it wasn't just a pride issue. It was a survival and thrive issue. For them, it was a status of success, prosperity, but most importantly, safety. They could actually lay their head down at night and not fear the enemy because their walls were built. Walls, walls were not for decoration. It was for survival. Without the walls, the city would be in great trouble. Let me help you put it in perspective. For us, it would be like, just imagine for a moment um, that the police aren't just defunded, they're kicked out of the city. Imagine no police in the city, right? And then go a step further, get rid of all of your guns. And then the next thing is, uh, there's no more ring doorbells. You can't see who's knocking before you get to the door. You can't answer them from Wi-Fi while you're at work to say, leave the package there, I'm in the shower, right? There's no more ring doorbell. There's no more home alarms. There's no more locks on your doors. There's no motion lights. There's no barking dogs. Remove anything and everything that gives you any sense of security in your home. And that's what these people felt when their walls were down. It was a city without hope, a city in desperate need of revival. Verse four, when I heard these things, this is, this is the, the whole point. The whole sermon centers on this verse. Listen, lean in to this verse today. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. When I heard these things, what things? When I heard about the fact that families are broken, when I heard about the pain that children are going through in the pandemic, when I, when I heard about the family abuse that is happening on lockdown, when I heard about the, the churches that are embracing social justice more than gospel justice, when, when I heard about churches who are now saying Jesus isn't the only way, let's have an interfaith community, when I heard about people who aren't loving their neighbor when i heard about afghanistan and people getting left behind that need to be rescued when i heard about these things i sat down and wept he sat down and he cried over some things he sat down and he wept when he got up, he got up with a burden. He didn't say that's somebody else's problem. He, he didn't say, Jesus, come quickly. Let me close the shades and turn off the news. He, he didn't say, that's another nation. Let them deal with it. He, he didn't say, that's another people. Let them deal with it. When he saw a problem... 
he sat down and he wept. So many of us, I'm afraid. I referenced being numb at the beginning of this sermon. I'm afraid that so many of us over the last year and a half, two years since this thing has you know, hit, hit the fan that we have become so numb that many of us don't even carry a burden anymore. I found myself there in the past two years. Numb. What do I care about? Am I making a difference? Church attendance, who, why, why, do I, why try? Connection, why try? Connect groups, why have it? Awaken, why have it? Four people show up. I've been there. Not there currently, but I know what it feels like to ask yourself if you even have a burden at all. What are you burdened for, Jordan? What are you, what are you burdened for, Corey? Come on, what's something that will make you cry at night when the wife and kids aren't watching? What, what is it? What a burden is a divine impartation that creates divine agitation. Something that you know, it's, it's not the weight of the world. It's the burden of the Lord that causes you to rise and build something outside of and beyond yourself. What are you burdened for, destiny? What? What are we burdened for as a church? Are we still burdened for the lost? I don't know. We can say yes, but are we bringing them? I don't know. I don't know if you're burdened for the lost. I don't know if you're burdened for reading the word of God. This sounds like a really butt whooping sermon and I don't mean it to be, I'm just bearing my heart today. We better separate our burdens because the world is trying to get us to be burdened for wrong things. And if we're not burdened for God's things, we'll never see revival in our home or in our church. So what are we burdened for? Because we have a, a burden that we've got to steward. The only reason... We're even reading about Nehemiah today. The only reason he's in the Bible is because he sat down and wept and he stood back up with the burden. By the way, your burden can change from season to season. You can have a, a, a burden for orphans one season of your life. You can have a burden for single moms another season of your life. You can have a burden for marriages that are falling apart. Don't, don't, you don't have to lock yourself into a burden, a lifelong burden, okay? But get a burden. Ask the Lord what your burden needs to be. And, and then sit with that burden for a moment. You don't have to run out and create a website or a hashtag about that burden. You, you don't have to file 501c3 to get nonprofit for that burden. You don't have to shout from the rooftops all about your burden and how you're going to write this and do this and go there. Just sit with the burden and mourn with it for a moment. Mourn over the millions of babies murdered in the womb every year. Mourn over the children that are raised in homes that don't represent biblical families with a mom and a dad. Mourn over that stuff. Don't let the world desensitize us and tell us it doesn't matter. It matters. Mourn over some things again. Let's get passionate. 
We will never rise and build. We will never have vision or purpose if we don't first find a burden that we are willing to sit with, to be uncomfortable with, and to mourn with. And what did Nehemiah do when he got the burden? He didn't take it to Twitter or Facebook. My new favorite, um, what is it called? GoFundMe. He took it to his knees in prayer. The burden, a burden from the Lord will always lead you to fasting and prayer. And burdens from the enemy or weight of the world will lead you to stress and despair, anxiety and panic. We see in verse 5, which I'm not going to read, that he begins fasting and praying. He begins disciplines of all things. Christianity 101. A burden takes you back to the beginning, the basics, the fundamentals of fasting and prayer. And listen, fasting and prayer, the disciplines, they're not sexy. They're not glamorous. You, you don't get to do selfies while doing disciplines. They're not even fun most of the time. While you're sowing in that discipline, there's a season where you just force yourself to show up to the table to get it done. But then there's a breaking point where all of a sudden that sowing season turns into a harvest season. And then you can't live without prayer. And you can't live without fasting. And you can't live without the word of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you. God, I thank you that you have actually created us to hold a burden from heaven. So God, I ask that you would prepare our hearts, cleanse us, purge us, Father, of the things that we're holding on to that's not leaving room for the kingdom burdens that you have for us. God, I thank you that you're doing a work, you're stirring within us. And over the next four weeks, we just already prophesy and declare that there is going to be a season of rising and building like never before. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Can you give it up for Jesus this morning? God bless you.